Hey gang, it's the Amigoid. That's right, when I'm not partying with all the movie stars in Hollywood, I'm listening to TopCast. You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime. www.marvin3m.com slash TopCast. Welcome to TopCast, and tonight we're going to be talking to somebody that's been involved with pinball a long time, and in fact has uh, put on the Pinball Expo shows in Chicago. His history in pinball, and uh, his work with the designers, and, and, and how he actually gets these people to come to Pinball Expo to speak, and how he got the manufacturers there to, uh, to display, and we're going to give him a call right now. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Special guests. Okay, we're going to call Rob Burke up uh, from the Pinball Expo. Rob Burke is the head guy in charge of Pinball Expo. Give him a call right now. Hello? Ready to rock. Okay. All right. So we're talking to Rob Burke. And Rob was, uh, you know, one of the guys that was in on the ground floor at, at uh, the Pinball Expo. And we kind of want to go back and um, and talk to Rob and see what his involvement in pinball was right from the start. So, Rob, what? Uh, how did you get involved with pinball? I mean, what's, what's your earliest memories of pinball? Well, Clay, it started out when I was a young child of five years old. I owned a, uh, my parents had bought a United um, Babyface. So that got me involved in the interest in pinball. And later on, when I got older, I got a uh, Gottlieb Texan. Yeah, now Babyface was a United Wood Rail. Right. Kind of, I, you know, I've only seen that game a couple of times. It didn't seem all that memorable to me. Is it a good game? Well, you know, being a young guy in the 1960s, that's all we knew growing up. It's the only machine we had in the basement. We played it, and amazingly, that game, we'd lost the key for the front door in order to uh, get the game started, but... That game was so incredibly reliable that for years and years and years, when we plugged in, it always worked. So uh, it served its purpose for its time. Did you play the wheels off of it? You got it. It went nuts. <laughs> All right, and then you got a you know, Texan? Like I said, we, I, I got a, a second game, this Gottlieb Texan, and the neighborhood kids would come over, and all of a sudden I realized I could make a little profit by charging them a nickel a game to play the game. Oh, you are a nice guy. Yes, sir. Oh, and how old were you when you were doing this? Uh, I'd say somewhere in my teens, early teens. So you were raping the kids' neighbors next door for That's a nickel right. a game. Oh, man, you're a sweetheart, Rob. <laughs> so from that interest, uh, when I was in my uh, later teens, once going to school in high school, I started playing pinball more and more because of the, the uh, county fair was probably the best opportunity I had whenever they came to town. They had their arcade there under the tent, and... um that gave me an opportunity to really play pinball to a much greater extent. So where, where were you living at the time? Always living in Warren, Ohio. Warren, Ohio. Yeah. So Warren, Ohio wasn't like the pinball capital of the world, it sounds like. It well, sound- Ohio was uh, one of those states where they didn't, didn't allow free plays or uh, extra balls, at least when I was growing up. So uh, 
Uh, you didn't see many pinball machines around, just occasional bowling alleys, but that was about it. So when the carnival came into town, that was like our state fair in Michigan. They would, they would, the carnies would bring these machines on pallets and stuff, and they'd drop them in this big tent. Right. They'd, they'd never be level because they would always be sitting on like dirt ground or or plywood. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. And and were there any good sideshows in the in the carnivals? Well, it wasn't so much. I went to the sideshows. Uh, the fair to see the sideshows. It was the pinball was my my interest, and uh, I remember probably the first game I really recall playing uh, during those times was um, Williams Paddock. For some reason, I took a fascination to that game. Yeah, that's a strange and, one too. And I kept that name in my in my mind uh, as I got older. And uh, actually, what really further developed my interest in pinball was going to college at Kent State, and there they the game rooms were just massively filled with. Rows and rows of pinball. So at that point in time, I really uh, went nuts. It, it, I asked you about the sideshows because uh, Norm used to go to the, the Michigan State Fair, and he said that you know he would play all the pinball machines and the arcade machines and stuff. But he said that the sideshows were just unbelievable. You know, the freaky lady or the you know the the what is it? The lady with uh, you know the beard, the bearded lady, and all that oh, kind of sure. stuff. Yeah, he. He loved that stuff. In fact, uh, one of the guys came to my father's office, and uh, he was in town for the for, you know for the week for the fair, and he'd mentioned that he owns one of the sideshows. So uh, my dad said, "Which one?" He said, uh, "The woman with the she had a head only, no body." So he says, "Come on down, I'll get you in a free admission to the fair." So of course he went to see this woman with she lived with a head only. And he went on to explain behind closed doors that there was a pit in the ground that they dug, and she, her whole body was in the pit, and only her head was exposed. So that <laughs> kind of gave us a little idea of what the uh, sideshow business was all about. Oh yeah, yeah, the sideshows are the best. They're the best. All right, so then, it's so you know, so you went. To, what were you going to school at uh, Kent for? I majored in political science. Okay, and now were you there during the seventies and the you know the the debacles that were there then? Yeah, shortly after the uh, the shootings in Kent, which was at nineteen seventy, so I was there in seventy two. So uh, every May fourth, they had their uh, classes that were canceled, and they had their little uh, prayer services throughout the day. Okay, I was just curious. You know, it's kind of interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so then what was the next thing? So this is during the mid seventies, and you're, uh, you know, when, now when did you open uh, 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 your paper company? When did that happen? Well, my dad had started that business, you know, way before I was even born, back in the fifties. So okay, and I wasn't really involved with the company business. It was there, but uh, being a young kid, my my interest was, was uh, fireworks and uh, oh. Just like uh, that guy out of Michigan, Clay. He's a, he's big into fireworks too. Yeah, and, and I wanted to ask you about that. You collect fireworks, which I think is just it. You know, when I when you first told me that, I was like, collect fireworks, man. All I do is blow them up. You know what I mean? That's not much of a collection if you blow the whole thing up. But you actually collect fireworks that are are in the original wrappers. Right. I collect the firecracker packs. Yes. Right. Right. Now, how did that start? Um. Where we live here in Ohio, the the only um, one of the more popular places to go for fishing is in Canada. Right. So typically, when we we would go to Canada, we would stop at either Niagara Falls or um, and a lot of the, the the fishing areas up north. As, whenever you go to the um, various stores, whether it be the, the, um, the drug stores or, or even the the bait and tackle stores, they would sell firecrackers in these stores. And being from Ohio, which was also uh, 
no free plays, no replays, and no fireworks. Right. So this is an opportunity, finally, to get your hands on firecrackers. So every guy likes firecrackers, and uh, every year we'd, we'd bring back some stuff from Canada. And for whatever reason, I'd just start collecting the different packs with different um, names on the labels. Yeah, when, when I was a kid, it was kind of the same way. I grew up in upstate New York. And, uh, of course, you know, there was only Attaballs, but at the time I really wasn't into pinball, but I was highly into firecrackers. We would do the same thing. We'd go up to Canada, because Canada was just straight across Lake Ontario, and um, same deal. We would buy fireworks and then bring them back over the border, and it would always, my dad always let me, you know, hide them in like the, uh, like in the tackle boxes and stuff like that. And, And it was funny, you know, because we'd always get searched at customs, and they they never found them, or they found them and just didn't care and didn't say anything. I, I'm, I was never sure which. That was half the fun, Clay, if you remember, of, of buying the fireworks or just the thrill and the anticipation of getting them across the border. Yeah. I know, though, my dad wasn't too thrilled about the whole thing. Oh, yeah, same with me. <laughs> but, yeah, but, I, I mean, I never saved them. I, I, I couldn't blow them up fast enough, you know. So, I, for me, you know, I, I guess at the time I didn't realize it, but I was fascinated by the art of the label. Really? Very much so. The people nowadays are fascinated by the art of the pinball back glass. So I guess there may be some correlation there, some similarities. The um, yeah, some of the art, you know, the especially like the you know the less common brands, you know, not the black cats and stuff right. like that, but some of the other stuff was kind of neat. Um, but what's amazing for me is, you know, I realized over, over time that there was other people like myself that collect these things and. Um, I have found stuff going back to the 1930s. Even some of the flea markets you go to, they, they, you occasionally will run into this stuff. It's very rare to find them, but uh, there is, a, a, let's say, two or three dozen people that I'm aware of that actually collect these packs like I do. So you can find unblown-up firecracker packs from the 30s. Unbelievable. It's, it's incredible to sound. The stuff is still lying around people's drawers. I'm sure huh. even some of your listeners got some that don't even realize that uh, people collect this stuff. Wow. Contact Rob Burke. There you go. <laughs> So now back to the pinball thing. Um, when did you uh, st- you know buy your first machine? You know, uh, you know the obviously what the baby face is probably gone and the Texan is gone at this point, right? Yeah, actually they're still they're still sitting in the home. But uh, um, after I left Kent State, I, after two years, I transferred to Ohio State University, and there I found uh, again an incredible large amount of game rooms with tons and tons of pinball machines. I mean, it was during the time when videos weren't really prevalent. So everybody was in the pinball, and that, that was it. That was the recreation in the corner industry was pinballs. And, of course, gun games, baseballs, and whatnot, but pinballs were my love. And uh, shortly after I got out of college, I started taking the fascination again to look for some of these games I recall playing as a youth, and the one being Paddock. So uh, there was an ad in the Cleveland paper. The guy was selling a post-time. Well, by this time, I got that Michael Comer's book, so I'm, I'm seeing all these books out there, and I, and I realized that I had a fascination and a particular love for the Attaball games, or I'm sorry, for the for the uh, single-player games, especially from the 60s and the mid-60s, the games I grew up playing. Hmm. So I went to Cleveland, and, and uh, I saw this post-time, and I recalled that the playfield was similar to what I, I recognized as the, being the Paddock playfield. But uh, the guy said, oh, this is more fun. You can keep getting free free balls and... In theory, you can play forever. So uh, I was just so um, enthralled by that game. I said, okay, I'll take it for $300 I paid for it. And, Which was probably uh, a lot A lot of back time then. getting it to play like new again, basically rebuilding it. And uh, that started my love for Attaball games. 
Now, $300 was a lot for a game back then, back right? Back then, you're right. Very high. Okay. But you just didn't know any better at the didn't time? No, it was like the, one of the first games I ever bought. But again, um, it was an out-of-ball game, which I'd never even heard of before. And uh, when I bought that game, I played it and really started taking a liking to out-of-ball games, saying to myself, geez, this is more fun than replays because you can you know, keep playing, keep playing, keep playing for a dime. So that really got me going. Hmm. And then what year do you think this was? Um, that was probably in the, around 75, 76. Okay. So then what was the next step? How did this thing start to ratchet up? Well, again, it was either in Colmer's book or actually I think perhaps it was in uh, Steve Kirk's book that I had heard about uh, Steve Kordek or read it that you know, he designed several games of that vintage, of that era. And when I was in Chicago with my parents on a business trip, it was a Sunday evening. We were at one of the hotels there, and uh, I was going through a phone book. And uh, sure enough, there's a Steve Kordak. So about 9 o'clock at night, I, I call this number, not knowing who it, this person is. And I said, are you the guy that works for the Williams Pinball Company? And his response was, yes, I am. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I mean, it was just a fluke. I just called, you know, Steve Kordak, who was in the phone book, and... uh I said, boy, would I love to meet you. He says, come on down. So I talked to my parents and taking them there the following day, and I got a quick tour of the Williams factory. And, again, this was during the you know, mid-'70s. And uh, I met for the first time Steve Kordek. Man, how many times do you think that happened to him? I, I don't think too often. I don't know, but uh, it was just bizarre that I, t- I had the guts to call him up. Uh, again, it was a Sunday evening, 9 p.m., and uh, he answered the phone. So it, it was uh, pretty exciting for me to talk to this fellow, and I'd mention him, my love for these games, especially Williams games, especially games from the mid-60s. So he said, well, if you if you like my games, you'll love the games for, that Norm Clark built. And I mentioned about post-time, and said, actually, that's Norm Clark's game. So I said, boy, I'd love to meet him. So that led into the introduction of Norm later on. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a good story. I like that one. Man, and you're lucky that his name was Kordak and not, like, John Smith. Right. Because <laughs> it was John Smith, there would have been 12 million of them in the Chicago phone book. You know? Yeah, that's unbelievable. All right, so then what was the next thing? What was the next thing that happened? Well, um, again, the interest in pinball grew, and during the same time, uh, Steve Young had his um, pinball clutches quarterly going on. Now, and, how did you uh, find Steve Young? Steve. How did you find Steve Young? How did you know about Steve Young? Um, hmm. I mean, he did, you know, there was no internet. Um, I think there was, just, there was just an advertising of his publication somewhere. And you just saw it? Perhaps it was through Talbert's book, Jim Talbert. Maybe he had a little listing in the back of his book of other publications. I, I, I can't remember. I, I don't recall exactly how the connection came. Because it was a lot harder to find these people back in the 70s, I right. mean, you know, just to, to set up like kind of a network. You're right. It was basically classified ads or whatever. You, you found out these people. Right, right. Okay. So um, during that same time, I, I had heard about a club in Akron, Ohio. It was a pinball collector's club, which uh, at this time I had the three or four games I had. And, and uh, I suppose this sounds interesting. Other people like myself that enjoy, you know, pinball machines. So I went to one of the meetings, and one of the first guys I met was Dave Wright, who has been to some of the expos in the past. And uh, I met Dave along with some other guys, and we talked our common interest, pinball. So over the years, um, we kind of gave a name, the Ohio Pinball Collectors Club, I think we called it. 
and we we would meet once a month at, at different areas, primarily in Akron. This is where it started, and um, I, I was a, became a member of that club, and I, and I would go to their meetings, and there I met uh, Bill Kurtz. So it was during one of the meetings where I, I, I recall sitting down that they were we were eating some snacks to, uh, just in the evening. There we had a little pinball meeting, and I, and I said, "Wouldn't it be something if we could get together?" Other people like ourselves also enjoy playing pinball. They are collectors and players and enthusiasts. So at the time, it was it, most of the guys just kind of blew it off, like, "Well, yeah, that's, that's a pretty far-fetched idea." But uh, uh, Bill Kurtz, who was kind of, is an author and, and, and a writer, uh, kind of found an interest in, in my idea, and I said, well, "Why don't you help me in trying to pull some off and let, let's just see how much of an interest there is in the, in this." Uh, hobby of ours. Yeah, it's interesting uh, that it was Bill Kurtz, because Bill is a little eccentric. Right, well this is uh, during the time when he wasn't as eccentric, and uh, he was um, very much a part of the club's meetings, and he was very much into pinball back then. Right, right, because now, it seems to me, I, I met him somewhere, I bought a backlass for for somebody, and I met him at a hotel, and he was somehow uh, associated with some musical group, like the Shana Alaz or something yeah, he, like that? Yeah, he's really big in this, in this 60s music and 50s music as well. I yeah. Yeah I, re- yeah, I remember meeting him. And, you know, and he seemed like a nice guy, though. So when this was like, how long did it take you to play? Because you know, the first expo was at 85, right? Yeah, well, this this was before that. And I think it was in either, I think it was in 84 when um, Bill and I drafted this. Um, basically, it was a questionnaire. You know, Would you be interested in attending a National Pinball Collectors Convention? And we used as our mailing list Steve Young's uh, mailing list from his Pinball Collectors Quarterly. Hmm. So we, we put an ad in his publication, and the response was so overwhelming that there was perhaps a need to have such a show. How many people do you think that got sent out to at the time? You know, I really don't know. Well, we got back, I don't know, let's say six or seven responses. I recall one was actually Norm Clark even sent a response back, so somehow he had heard of this publication. But all these different names I'd never even heard of uh, uh, at the time, who are you know big names in the hobby today, but several of them you know sent back yes, 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 and I said, should we have it in Chicago, Los Angeles? Where should we have it? And most of them said Chicago. Should we have it in the springtime, uh, summertime? Most of them said the fall. So based on that response, uh, Bill and I went ahead and, and started putting together um, a show. And, and uh, I always felt, and, and I still feel the same way today that. Um, you need someone, a part of the industry, to really drive the show. And I got a hold of my friend, Steve Kordak. <laughs> and I said, Steve, I'm putting together this show. We're going to have uh, seminars and we're going to have exhibitors. I said, would you, you know, being an employee by Williams, do you think you could get Williams to exhibit at our show? Well, you know, at this time, you know, I had spoken to him so many times that, you know, he got tired of seeing me and, and – uh, I don't know who he talked to, but he got the nod. He said, "Yes, they will. They will come." Well, at the time, Williams and some of the other manufacturers uh, afterwards told me that they thought that these shows of sorts were, were really a waste of their time because to invest money in a, in a collector show was um, not a very good return. You know, their, their, their main focus was the uh, operators, operators, and their trade shows. So I was lucky, I guess, to get this to happen. So Steve agreed. And then Steve, who in turn had hooked up with Norm Clark, uh, Norm Clark, I spoke to him, and at the time Norm worked for Bally. And I said, hey, Norm, 
Williams is coming to our show. Will Bally come to our oh show? Oh, my God. You're, like, playing them against each other. Exactly. <laughs> so Norm talked to whoever he talked to. They heard Williams was coming, so he said, well, if Williams is coming, we'll come. So here you go. Uh, someone totally out of the industry comes in and you know, starts this show from, from scratch, and I get two of the major players to, to join or to come to exhibit. Well, meanwhile, through all of this, I had met Don Murphy and bought coils from him, you know, uh, over the years. Yeah, because he was uh, uh, wound transformers and coils for Gottlieb, right? Right. So I asked um, Don, I said, Don, to me, to really make this show kick off, if I could get Elvin Gottlieb to speak at the banquet, I know this show is going to make it. It'll be a success. So he gave me Elvin's phone number. I called him out of the blue. I said, you, know, you don't know me. My name is Rob Burke. I'm from Warren. I'm a pinball player and enthusiast. I want to do this pinball show. I'd like to have you be our banquet speaker. So he seemed kind of uh, kind of enthralled that I would call him and, and, and kind of uh, inquisitive, like, well, what's this thing all about? It's just, so it just so happened I was in Chicago about two weeks after I spoke to him uh, with my folks again, and I said, can I stop by and see and talk to you more in person? So he says, yeah, here's my home address. Stop on by. Wow. <laughs> so just the, the mere thought of this was mind-boggling to me to, to meet this guy. He invites me. He doesn't even know me from Adam. He says, yeah, come to my home. And I went to see him on a Saturday afternoon. Here the guy's dressed in blue jeans. And I'm thinking to myself, this guy's going to be wearing a suit and a tie and all decked out to the nines. And there he is, like a regular guy, with blue jeans, just casual. He says, yeah, come on in. So uh, we talked for, I don't know, a good half hour, four or five minutes, and, and I... I expressed him my desire to have him speak at our banquet, and I, I told him about my enthusiasm for the for the games and so forth, and mentioned to him that Steve Cordick is coming with Williams, Norm Clark coming with Valley, who he knew both these guys. But when I was done with him, he said, you know, you're so enthusiastic and so motivated, how could I say no? Y yes, I will agree to be your guest speaker. <laughs> so that slow but sure, the this, this show is coming together. Now, wait, did... Now, so you've got Valley and Williams... Uh, having display booths, did Gottlieb not want to do a display booth? Well, again, once I hooked up with Elvin, then, then at that point in time, you know, I, I talked to him about getting his people, you know, to exhibit as well. And I think by this time he was gone from the industry, I believe. But, um, you know, yeah, he because, hooked up with the people, whoever it was, and, and we got them to come as well. Yeah, because he had sold the Columbia Pictures right. in, what, 76. So it was slowly coming together. Well, meanwhile, going back to the Ohio Pinball Clutches Club, one of the guys that uh, was also a member of the club was Mike Pasek. And Mike at the time worked for DeBartlow as the uh, head of operations for their game room there called Fun and Games. Right. So I, I had met Mike at, at the local mall. He was repairing one of the games there, and just I happened to walk into the one day when he was repairing games. So we talked and became friends, and he was a member of this club. And at the time, Mike was a real jukebox nut. Pinball was kind of like secondary in his mind. He really wasn't into pinball that much. But uh, he came to all the shows, and we talked, became close friends. So about six months into the planning of the expo, I asked Mike if he wanted to join us as the uh, exhibit uh, chairman or someone that could help us with the, you know, setting up the exhibits and handling that part of the show. And, and his response was, sure, because you know he had a lot of contact with uh, some of the people in the industry that I didn't know, including Ron Gold and some other guys and some of the operators. And he says, perhaps I can help you know that angle, getting someone involved in, in exhibiting as well. So all of a sudden, uh, we had three guys involved with the show, and um, 
needless to say, it went off without, without a hitch, and it was extremely su- successful. How big was the first 85 show compared to, say... We had know, about 100, 100 people show up. Oh, okay, so pretty small in attendance numbers, right? Yeah, but um, what made it fun was um, just finally meeting everybody, because like, like you mentioned, uh, Clay, back then, the only way to communicate was through um, typing a letter... Uh, or sending a cassette to your friend to, to listen to. So um, to finally meet Steve Young face to face, Don Murphy face to face, was just like mind boggling because the, all you you know we, we would talk on the phone and write letters to these guys all the time, but we finally had a chance to meet these people in person. So uh, I, I recall that Rich Conker came to our show and and people said that it was pretty unbelievable that Rich would come because he hates flying. But somehow he made an effort to come to our show. He was there, Russ Jensen, and several of them, several other notables. And um, I recall Dick Bouchelle being there and him saying it was a, a pinball loving because <laughs> there was just so much enthusiasm generated from that event that people that had, had spoken on the phone to and, and, and written to each other so long finally met face-to-face. So it, it was truly a... a a special event. And the format of Expo back in 85 really isn't much different than it is today, right? Right. And what's so crazy, Clay, is that um, before even uh, doing the Expo, um, I belonged to, and I still belong to, a group of fireworks enthusiasts. And they ha- it's called the PGI, and, and it's, it's uh, for firework nuts like you and myself. They get together once uh, once a year at a convention that lasts about a week. It's like, a week-long fireworks convention? You got it, buddy. Where is that held? Every year is somewhere different. But okay. Typically, it's out west. Fargo, North Dakota, Gillette, Wyoming. But I based the expo on a similar format that they did, which was basically seminars during the day and then uh, an exhibit hall, and then in the evening, they had, of course, they had the fireworks displays. But I based a lot of my ideas on, on the format of the expo, on what they did and what was successful for them. Was the um, was the fireworks thing? I mean, you said they have seminars. They have like how to create, um, you know, fireworks. How, how to make skyrockets? How to make the stars? How to build shells? Really? Yeah, it, it's it, it's far advanced even the expo because they they have seminars uh, for a whole solid week, just from morning till like nine to five every day. They have full seminars. So. And, and do you still go to this? I still go to that, yep. And have you ever made any of your own fireworks? No, I never did, but um, I got involved early on with that organization as being in the auctioneer. So now you know, Clay, how yeah. I got the skills when I became the auctioneer at the uh, expo. Yeah, the, the, the famed auctioneer at the banquet that could get anybody to bid on any piece of junk right. and get crazy money for it for the Children's Hospital, right? Yeah, the Make the Make a Wish Foundation. And right. um, this past year, as you know, we had that, that that sanding block that went for over a hundred dollars. Yeah. Oh my God. So those kind of things happen all the time at the at this fireworks convention. I, I'm always getting a lot of money. I recall one of the fireworks conventions, someone donated a pack of uh, crackers that came from uh, the Middle East, and I think we sold out for seventy five dollars. You know, I've just to kind of give you a, a you know a little information as if you haven't heard this before, but. I've heard that you're just a little too aggressive at the banquets on trying to get bids, that sometimes people get mad at you. Is this true? Uh, one particular person told me that, and, and uh, it's interesting. I don't know. I, if that is the case, I'd like to hear from more people, because a lot of people find the aggressive to be more of, of a of a 
um, novel comical, thing and, and comical it, release. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. I, I um, it's 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 a difficult thing because some people look at it as as um, intrusion on their privacy, whereas other people just feel like it's all in the fun of the evening. So, do you want to talk about the pin geek hat? Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, thanks to the help of Mr. Frederick Young, the voice, the man of many voices, he happened to um, grab the geeks. Pinky's hat in a very swift motion. Yeah, this is the hat that that's kind of like uh, eclipses his half of his head and has the propeller on the top. Right, very rare hat, I'm sure. Very rare. Part of his childhood youth. Yeah, very rare, and thank God it is. He snuck it over to me and uh, with the idea that I could possibly auction it off, but it's like some people with uh, they need that that security clutch, and I, I I had to give it back to him because I knew without it he would be in, in tears. Yeah, yeah, I heard it. he was an emotional wreck after that happened. That's right. Yeah, we do. We don't want to cause any ill. But the auction is all in fun, you know. For anyone that's been offended, I apologize. But for those of you that enjoyed it, I mean, that's that's the whole idea behind it. Just, it's well, light humor. It's fun. It, we we and um, Rob, you just keep going on offending people. I, I'm okay with it. Yeah. Well, you know, even this this. I never saw Gary Stern get so involved in the arts like he did this year when when he got his cronies that each put up a thousand dollars, you know, for the Make a Wish auction. So that that was pretty impressive. You mean the people that worked for him put up a thousand bucks each? He, got, he put up a thousand dollars. He got Tommy Neiman to put up a thousand dollars, and he got um, what's the other fellow's name? He used to be with Bow. I can't think of it now. But they all put up a thousand dollars each, so it, 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 whatever it was I was auctioning at the time, it went like three or four thousand dollars. So I mean, it's all for a good cause. Okay, we're going to take a break from talking with Rob Burke of the Pinball Expo, and we'll be back in just a moment after these. Topcast is brought to you by Pinball Life. Give your pinball machine new life with parts from Pinball Life. We ship pinball parts worldwide. Pinball Life is located in the great city of Chicago, and their phone number is 773-202-8758. We have an open-door policy, and you are welcome to call us with your questions and concerns. 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday. Their website is at pinballlife.com. Pinball Life. No hassles, just the parts you need fast. Okay, we're back talking with Rob Burke of the Pinball Expo. You know, Joe Kamiko is very much an advocate of the Expo, and uh, in the early years, uh, he was extremely, extremely helpful. Yeah, Joe Kamiko, of course, it was the guy that um, basically uh, helped start up Data East, and he's also worked at Williams. He's worked at Gottlieb. Um, God, he's worked just about everywhere. Before, yeah, and it, I don't know why. But Joe took such a liking or fascination with me and the expo that, especially in the early years, um, I'll never forget when, when um, this is a good story, about the whole idea behind Baby in the Hole and Harvey Heist. Harvey Heist, of course, is the designer for Genko. Yeah, and, and Harvey, a lot and of people don't know about Genko. Cordic, but uh, he was extremely enlightening. And, and, and in the early years of the expo, he spoke... Um, and people just love to hear this guy talk. He never, he had never knew what would come out of his voice next because uh, he, he, Casey had some profanity and and, and and some of the craziest X-rated stories, and, and it, it was just, he was just so much fun. Uh, again, he was in his mid eighties, I think, when he when he came to Expo, and um, he had spoken at one of these seminars about uh, something he had, he had uh, built for Genko, which you know about, clearly these roll downs. Right, which were extremely successful, and he had a dream 
for a vision of a, ga a game called Baby in the Hole, which he played as a child, and incorporating that game of Baby in the Hole into a roll-down. So um, Joe Kamenkow happened to be at that seminar, and doggone if Joe didn't say, Rob, let's build this game for Harvey. So uh, he, along with um, Ed Cibola and Sarah Bagnolia and, and, and the staff at, at um, Daddy East at the time, they, they developed software from scratch. They built the game along with help from Kevin O'Connor, and, and uh, he did the artwork at Gratis or at a very, very low price. And a lot of things were donated. A lot of time was donated. And the following year, this game was presented to Harvey Heiss. And some of the websites, you see him look at his game with both his hands clutched to his cheeks like, oh, my gosh. Right. I've seen that picture. It it's was, on the Expo webpage. Yeah, Clay, to, to be there for that event, I mean, it, it, it almost brought you to tears because... Uh, I mean, this guy in his mid-80s, he just went down to his knees, like, hold this thing, like, my baby, it, it finally happened, my dream. What so happened just, to the just, game? It was just exciting. What happened to the game? I, I have the game to, to this day. I have the game here in my home. Is, and they only made one? Yeah, just only one piece was made. Okay, was there any, uh, I mean, could it, is it something that would, could have been commercially successful today? Well, I mean, the roll-downs I played, and I own a few roll-downs, um, you know, there's quite a bit of skill to it, but um, with the baby in the hole, there was a saucer-shaped configuration in the front of it. But it, it was it was constructed in such a way that that ball would would um, sometimes roll in that saucer for the longest time. You mean kind of like a toilet toilet bowl roll type thing? Is that what you mean? Well, it rolled down, and then instead of going in, into a um, into a hole at the end of the track like most of the roll downs do. It went to a configuration that had several hexagon-shaped uh, saucers that were inverted, so the ball would roll into it, and it would it would almost go in one saucer, but because they there was a very small lip on it, it would it would, it would kind of roll almost into the other one. And uh, I could possibly perhaps bring it back to Expo again, but it just um, I don't know if it would make it commercially. Okay. Now, just to be clear, because a lot of people don't know what a roll-down is, roll-down games started, well, you see them primarily in the 50s, and Genko uh, was the king of roll-downs. Right. Um, and what it, basically what it is is it's a pinball play field with, with no, no holes except at the very top of the play field, the part of the play field furthest from the player, and the play field is angled, reverse-angled. Uh, you know, not like angled towards the player like a pinball machine, but angled away from the player. And you basically try and roll the ball down into the appropriate hole to gain some objective to the game. Like, when I was over at your house, you had uh, a Genko roll down that you had bought, like, new in the box? Is that what I'm hearing? Right, that came from John Bellotta. Okay, what was the story on that? Um, again, Bill Kurtz, you know, through all his travels, I heard about this guy. And he... Um he had been operating this forever, and he had a warehouse full of old old games still in the original boxes. So, um, and I really can't recall what year it was, but I'll, we'll say somewhere in the in the uh, maybe early eighties, eighties perhaps. But I went to see him, and he had um, several games new in the box. One of which I bought from him was was a Godlove Rockstar, and he also had this game from Genko. Now imagine here we are in the eighties. And there was a box sitting in his warehouse, and there was a hole punched through it so people could see what it was. And, and on the side of the box, it said, Sweet 21. And imagine, Clay, to buy a game in the, in the I don't know, if it was the early or mid-'80s, still 
new in the box, made by Genko in the late 50s. So that game sat in storage for 30 years. Wow. So when I saw it, it looked actually boring to me. I'd never seen a rolled down before, but it was Genko, and I was I was fascinated by Genko, you know, through um, hearing about it through through Harvey Heist and, and Steve Cordick. So I bought the game pretty much sight and seeing it. Didn't even know what I was buying. And that game sat in, in my uh, warehouse for a year or two before I finally decided to pull it out. And when I first brought it out, I, I never saw a roll down. Never even played a roll down. But to this day, it's probably one of the most popular pieces in my basement. Yeah, just to kind of back up uh, even a little more, Harvey Heist was, of course, the main game designer for Genko during the 50s, and Steve Kordak worked for Harvey, right? Yep. Okay. Even now, before the 50s. He was there earlier than that. Right. And just to kind of even bring it back a thing, you you are a big Genko fan. You like the Genko games. Right. Okay. Now, Genko was known for some really kind of wild and cool games. They weren't so, They weren't known so much for their pinball stuff during the 50s, okay. but but their arcade games are what they're really known for, and of course the roll-downs. Now the roll-downs, you know, the reason why I would, personally I would say that they were very popular is because they were kind of were an easy game to gamble on. Right. You know, I mean, uh, like your particular game is basically uh, a blackjack game. That's right. It's a, 20, a game of 21, um, and you're trying to get, what is it, between 16 to 21 without busting that's right. Right, and uh, it, you know, I've uh, I've got some video of of you playing it. It was kind of interesting, and you said that uh, at the time when I was interviewing for you for that, you said that there's been a number of spirited games played on this. Oh yeah, I, I recall that uh, uh, one of the Japanese fellows, Masai Horiguchi, had, had come to my home, and uh, on his way to Expo, he stopped by to see me and visit me, and and he got on that game, and I couldn't get him off of there. He must have played the game for a good hour by himself, and he was so fascinated by it, and I had never seen anyone do this, but he actually held the the cue ball with his left finger, and then with his right finger, he flicked it with a backward English, so he was able to control where that ball was going. I didn't, I'd never such a, saw such a crazy thing in my life. Now, I've noticed that when I first started going to the Expo in the early 90s, there was a large presence of Japanese collectors, but I haven't seen them so much lately. Did something happen? They still come, uh, Clay, every year. I mean, let's face it, it's, it's, it's a expensive uh, run for these guys to come to the expo, but uh, there's several guys that still come on a regular basis every year, and, it, and it, it's a hit and miss how many show up, but i say in the past 10 years, we've we've probably averaged three to four Japanese um, players every year showing, coming up for the show. And what, from how many different countries do people come to, to expo? Well, that's a good question, too, because uh, even the very first expo, we had a couple foreign uh, uh Players and enthusiasts show up. And in fact, the first uh, convention, Gary Flowers showed up from England. And of all our foreign attendees, he has been to every expo. So we actually gave him a plaque, I think, a year or two ago to uh, commemorate him for that event. Right. But um, we've had him from Japan, from Italy, um, I believe France. Certainly the Netherlands, I know. Netherlands that. and Norway, all in, all in that. Yeah, Belgium, very popular. Very popular, right? Germany, we've had some, the German Pinball Association has been down. Of course, Japan, Canada. Quite quite a large variety of people, and it, it's amazing. A lot of stuff is through word of mouth and, of course, through the Internet. Now, you've noticed that there's been, in the last five years, uh, an explosion of shows. Right. Um. You guys were kind of like that. You were definitely the original show, right? And when did you notice that 
you know, it used to be for a long time that you were the only show. Right. When did things start to the actual, you know, where where you were getting um, yeah, people? Yeah, if I'm that, not mistaken, I think it was the fifth year of Expo when the, when the first show came in Phoenix. I can't recall the name of the show offhand. Right, but, with Dangerous Dan, was he doing that? Um, perhaps he was one of the guys behind it. Okay. But, um, you know, in the beginning we were kind of offended by it because, uh, you know, someone was, was stealing our thunder. Right. But it was it was only a matter of time before, you know, I guess in a way it was a compliment because people realized that, um, hey, it's a good show, it's a fun show, let's do one more regionally because not everybody can come to Chicago. And, you know, these shows are flourishing. Now, what happened with Bill Kurtz? He he obviously didn't stay on, and it's it's you and Pazak doing the show now. At some point, he split off and, and decided not to, to help with the show anymore. Right. When, when did that happen? Well, unfortunately, he and Mike had a very similar interest, and that was collecting pinball flyers. Right. So I, I think something developed through through that that that, that strained the relationship, and that, and that probably was the beginning of it. You know, well, I, I had invited Bill to come back to our show. Um, I think for the 20th anniversary, I, I asked him if, if he'd want to be our guest, but uh, he declined. It just, I guess, you know, he lost his interest in supporting the expo, which was unfortunate because you know he was very much a part of the early years. Now, how many years did he, was he working with you guys? I'd say, um, um, I'm guessing three or four years, okay. I believe. Yeah, Mike's kind of an interesting guy. If you, you know, you're either best friends with him or worst enemies. There isn't sometimes there just isn't a lot of middle ground with Mike. Well, you know, um, we've all have have our personalities, and, and and some people probably don't don't get along with me or think I'm crazy. But let's face it, uh, together we've put on this show for so many years, and it, it, it keeps getting stronger. So, no matter what anyone thinks, it still you know it takes several people to put the show together, and. Um, we, you know, we we all add our two cents to it, one form or the other. When you first started planning your show, uh, you know, the first year, and you know, you guys are in Ohio, and you're having a show in Chicago, that must have must have uh, made it very very difficult to yeah, do this. Yeah, that's a good point, and and I I really don't know why I picked a hotel near the airport. I, I guess figuring that people like myself got to fly in, and and when they fly into, into O'Hare, Rosemont is is the city of choice. So I don't really know how I picked that Holiday Inn. The Holiday Inn was, was our first uh, year, our first two years. And uh, it's a good question. I'm not really sure how I gravitated towards that site. But like anything else, you know, once once the idea and plans were starting to come together to have this show, I had gone to that to that particular hotel and, and, and somehow worked out a plan to make it happen. And what's crazy is, is um, in my mind, after the first expo, I was done with the expos. I, I had, had accomplished my goal, which was to honor my heroes, who were the designers. And um, after that show, it, it went off so well, I felt that mission was accomplished. I'm done. Hmm. So going into 86, I had no plans to do a second show. And I'd say about six months in, into the into that year, I started getting phone calls. Well, when's the next show? And I said, well, I have no plans to do another show. Oh, you got it. You're crazy. What do you mean? So, um, you know, it was uh, six months into the following year that I finally decided, that, well, okay, let's try it one more time. And as you see, we've, we've never stopped since. Right, right. And they've always been in the fall, basically in October or November, right? Right. And, and that second year was also a very memorable show because we recognized Steve Kordak. 
and uh, I got various people who, who'd known Steve or uh, had been associated with him in one form or the other to come up and, and, and toast him. And uh, it was extremely well received. It was it was a lot of fun, and um, it was certainly taken back by. So uh, I recall uh, Harvey Heist, uh when he came up and said some accolades. Steve would, was whispering on the side, "Keep it down. Don't say don't say any bad stories. Don't say anything." So I, I got a big kick out of that because Harvey and Steve worked together. So they, I'm sure they, they experienced many escapades together over the years. And some of them, which I don't think Steve wanted Harvey to broadcast, so he says, keep it down, keep it down, Harvey. Uh-huh. And, and also, I, I should note that, that Genko got bought out by Chicago Coin, what, in 58. Right. Um, and at that time, then, did those two guys go and work for Chicago Coin? Uh, I, I recall, um, in speaking to Kordak, I believe it, it, right around that time, he went to work for Bally. And he worked for Bally for only a year. This is Steve Kordak, only for a year. And then he ended up at Williams, I think, in 60. Yeah, 60, because when Harry Williams was going out, Kordak came in and, re- and, and was like the key designer. Actually, he was really like the only designer, I believe, in, in 1960. Now, Harvey Heist went to work for a company that, out of Miami, Florida, that made, made like kitty merry-go-rounds. But he, Harvey was also involved in, in the, um, the, the development of uh, Pepe the Clown. Oh, okay. So, um... Somewhere in my, in my notes, I have like, the exact um, recollection of how that all, all came about, but that he was also involved in that. Now, why didn't those guys stay with uh, Chicago Coin, who bought Genko? Well, there must have been something happening there that, that, that there was a, uh, some friction, internal friction, because a lot of those guys left. Right. Yeah, I, I, I don't know for sure what's happening on that, but um, that's a good question to find out. Now, Harvey designed some of the classic uh, arcade games from Genko, too, like um, the Hi-Fi Baseball, the Champion Baseball, the Motorama. Didn't he? He did those games, too, right? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, Clay, but I, I recently got through uh, through eBay the instruction manual for Motorama, and inside that there was a letter uh, addressed to, you know, Dear Operator, uh, and it, it basically expressed the the, um, the history behind the Motorama, how it was in development for a year and a half in California and so forth. And it was signed by the chief engineer at the time, Steve Kordak. Really? Yeah. Huh. So I I told this, gave this information to Steve just recently, and and, and he was very fascinated to hear that, that I had this letter. He actually asked for a copy of that letter. He, he barely remembers me writing it. Wow. So, but... Steve worked for Harvey, right? That is correct. Okay. So Harvey had his hand in all, and obviously all these games, and, 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 and it sounds like Steve did too. I'm sorry, what's that question? So Steve and Harvey had their, their hand in all these classic 50s EM arcade games from Genko. Absolutely. You know, because, like for instance, the Hi-Fi Baseball and the Champion Baseball were unique in pitch and bats. You know, at the time... Williams was making pitching bats, you know, every year they had a new model, and they were they were sold very well. The production numbers were, were fairly high compared to the Genko games. But the Genkos were, were much more unusual. They used bigger balls. Uh, they're kind of like a hollow plastic, and like you were actually using a miniaturized wooden bat to hit the ball out of the air, unlike the Williams where it was actually like a pinball that came down and you were hitting it like a flipper. Now, Clay, let's face it. I feel in my mind you are a collector extraordinaire, and especially in the arcade games, and you have a pretty good knowledge of it. 
But you got to admit the Genko games had a flair about them. They were like a step above. They they had some some they were really uh, intriguing games with a lot of unusual twists, and and they just they were very innovative for their time. Yeah, I I, I totally agree. The the only problem I have with them is how hard they are to find. Absolutely. If, if anybody has any Genko fifties arcade EM games for sale, call do not Clay. call Rob Burke. Call, call Rob Clay. Burke. Call Clay. Not I'll Rob. A, I'll give a hundred dollars more. No, I'll give him a hundred dollars more. <laughs> And that would be easy because I, I I know that you don't pay a lot for it. Actually, right. you do. I was amazed. You bought a Motorama, didn't you? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, I got that from from Mike Pasek, and uh, he he got it for a very good price. But he had it in his collection for ages. And uh, being a Genko lover, it took about three years, but I finally got him to, to agree to to uh, give it up. Now you have a Genko two player basketball, which is probably, uh, arguably, the best. EM arcade game of the 1950s, right. period, of all manufacturers, the Genko two-player basketball. You have one of those, too, right? Right. Right. Now, how do you feel about that game? Well, you know, the, it's funny, but the first game I, I owned was was the Chicago Coins single-player um, basketball game. Right, the one from uh, the late 40s. So, I actually, I own that one as well, but the Genko one is definitely much, much more appealing and a lot more enjoyable. Well, the Genko's two-player, playing head-to-head. Right. Um, you have more control over control over the players. In the, in the Chicago coin, um, basically, you can't steer the player right or left. You can only, thing you're judging is, or controlling is how hard he throws the ball up. See, again, Clay, why was Genko so innovative? You know, it's, it's time and time again, you know, it just shows there was more thinking involved. In, in, in all their pieces. Now, that's another question is, was the two-player basketball, was that a Harvey game or a Kordak game or a collaboration yeah, game? Yeah, you know, I, I'll have to find that answer out, but I, I believe it was Harvey as well. That's Harvey. I, I think during that time as well, there, it, there was more of a brainstorming kind of situation at Genko than, uh, than anyone actually being involved solely with the design of these games. Right. You know, I've got another one called Jet Pilot, which is the same cabinet as Motorama right and the one that which is kind of an interesting game um and the uh, where you're actually flying an airplane around you know it's kind of like a tethered airplane around in a circle but you got to land it on particular cities kind of like uh landed on the right piece of the pie so right. to speak and then the one that I really like to find that I have had no luck getting is the Genko Space Age, mm-hmm. which again is a Motorama style cabinet, but that one, have you ever played that game? No, I haven't. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to even find pictures of that one. That you know, one I have really another Genko game, which is a very enjoyable. It's, it's, it's a skee ball game, but it's called Skill Ball. Right. I've played that. I've played that. It's a very simple game, but you know, they, they've added a little novelty to it, and that is if you hit the 50, um, when a certain ball is lit, you get a free ball back for it. Right, but again, you know, there was some innovation there, and some someone really put some thought into that to make that skew ball a bit more enjoyable and much more of a um, attraction by having that free ball possibility. Right, right. Are there any other Genko games that you've collected? You know, the, through the years that you. Well, I've got that collection? one called Double Action, which was kind of like a pinball game with a. It's got the the back glass has got like a a. a um, like a, like a nails where the ball just kind of goes in various slots at the bottom, okay. sort of like that that golden nugget kind of idea. Right, right, right. But, Any but, other ones? Um. Well, I've I've got some of their gun games, which I don't have any set up in the basement. Yeah, they were a big gun game manufacturer. Very big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you like their gun games? Uh, you know, I I don't recall them that much. I I bought the games, but I don't recall playing them. How about yourself? 
You know, I haven't played a lot of them either. Um, I find with uh, those Dale-style gun games, which all the Genko ones basically are modeled after, and just to let our listeners know, a Dale-style gun game, um, Dale came up with the idea of having kind of a video game-style cabinet with a set of mirrors to give the illusion of depth. So, you know, prior to that, gun games, if you wanted, a, you know, a six-feet or an eight-foot shooting range, you know, you made the cabinet six or eight feet long. Well, then Dale said, okay, we're going to stand this up on the end like a video game. Well, obviously, there weren't video games, but that's how the cabinet kind of looks. And then you use the player looks through a mirror at 45 degrees, hits another mirror at 45 degrees, it goes down the, the, the height of the cabinet and gives, um, gives that illusion of depth in a much smaller package, and that's known as a Dale-style gun game. Mm-hmm. And basically all the manufacturers copied that after Dale came out with it after World War II. And um, all the Genko games are, are that variety. Um, I, I, you know, I, I found that, uh, that gun games in general seem to really hit their stride in the late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course that was long after all the ground had been broken by Dale and Genko. Um, you know, Bally and, uh, and Williams really didn't make that many gun games. I mean, Williams made a few in the 50s, but it was really Genko that was, that was cranking out the gun games in the 50s. You know, the people listening to this broadcast, they, they have to really take a, a second look, if they haven't already, at uh, perhaps collecting or, or enjoying arcade games. Because, um, I mean, I started out as collecting pinballs and pinballs only, but the more arcade games I've got, the more I, I'm fascinated by them. I don't say they have the, the player appeal where you can play them hours on end like pinballs, but there's still a, a, an interest to them and part of the history of, of this whole industry that makes them quite uh, novel and collectible. Well, also, if you do, if you like working on pinball machines, you'll love working on the EM arcade games because you'll find that the imagination and the features that they came up with using, right. you know, basically, you know, a, a bunch of toothpicks, bubble gum, and paper clips. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're not obviously not really using that stuff, but that's kind of when you get at the end of the day, you look at this and said, you know, what they did, they did so much with so little. Yep. You know, it's just it, it's it's amazing to well, me. Well, just there were some brilliant minds back then. Oh, incredible and just incredible. You know, and Genko was also the first company to use. Um, well, maybe not the first, but certainly during the fifties, I think they were the only company to use DC voltage. That's right. For all their coils, opposed to using AC, which is what everybody else used. And Steve Kordick, who is still living, still brags about that fact. He said that's why their games are still playing today and, and they're still doing uh, are doing so well. Yeah, they use this selenium rectifier. That's correct. Which, Clay, have you interviewed uh, Steve Kordak yet? You know, that's coming up. Good. I think that'll be very enjoyable because, uh, you know, it, it's unfortunate, but a lot of the, and probably a lot of your listeners are, are newer players and collectors and, and they just can't uh, really appreciate what these guys have brought to this industry, and, and to have Steve still living is just truly amazing. Yeah, because he's uh, well into his nineties. Oh yeah, yeah, I think I believe he's ninety-five. Yeah, I I talked to him on the phone the other day, and I mean he is clear and and uh, a clear of mind and speech. It was like it was like talking to somebody in their in their thirties. You know what I mean? Yep. You know, I, I would like to suggest that perhaps you have a. Uh, a double, a two-hour meeting with him because maybe you can break up the interviews because I think there's so much information he can provide for you. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that guy's got, you know, stories that just don't stop. You know, I'm, and I've never really heard any of his stories, so they're all going to be fresh to me. Yeah. Um, his love of the industry is just, is just amazing. And, uh, 
you know, again, realize with me starting the expo, you know, I was a complete stranger, and, uh, you know, he had open arms. So, yeah, come on, let me tell you more. What else do you want to know? And um, just, it's, it's uh, you know, it's part of, of, of this history that, uh, you know, one of these days will be gone. Was he um, one of the most enthusiastic, you know, people in the industry that, that you ever had to deal with? Well, to be honest, the most enthusiastic was Joe Kamikow. Really? <clears throat> For me, anyways, and especially in those early years, he, he was just always there. He, he would do everything he could and then some. And, you know, in the early years of the Expo, it was Joe's idea to bring entertainment to the, uh, to the Expo during the banquet. And the, the, the mere idea of that was something I really didn't think of, but um, he always gave it his 100%, 110% to, to try to help the Expo. And, he had no monetary uh, benefit from it, but um, he he was just so into it that he did everything to help see it to uh, succeed. Now, speaking of monetary, on the first expo that you put on, did you actually make any money, or was it a losing proposition? Yeah, I, I think for the most part we just about broke even, but I guess that's pretty good considering you know we did this thing from scratch. You know, as, as, a, as a point of reference, back then the full package was thirty-five dollars. Right. So uh, it just shows how times have changed. But um, and you did the Holiday Inn. How many years did you stay at the Holiday Inn? Two years. Two years, and then you went to the Ramada. Right. And now I heard that you stayed at the Ramada for as long as you did because of uh, um, a contractual agreement with the union people, or the fact that you didn't have to have the union people there. Well, there it was a non-union hotel, so um, that was a plus for us because uh, bringing these machines in and out. If we had to use a union, it would be extremely expensive. Because at one time we thought about going to the Higher Regency, um, but um, it was a union hotel, and they they even informed us as you know you're going to pay you know a lot of money to have them. They they have to touch every machine that comes in and out, and uh, it just seemed like it would be a problem. So that's right. why we ended up at the Ramada. If we were there till they closed their doors, right? And they were like like in the area. I think they were the only non-union hotel, right? Well, there's there's actually a few more because where we are now, the Wyndham is also a non-union. Right, because if it was a union hotel, if you wanted to move a game from the from your car into the expo hall, actually the union guys would have to do it, right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. So that means, and also, what about the electricians for? Because has power been a problem at the hotels? Not too much, I and mean, we we had to pay for it, of course. But uh, overall, it hasn't. Do you have to actually bring in additional circuits for the expo? No, no, that that really hasn't been an issue. In the case, it was some circuit breakers issues, but. Uh, for the most part, the, the, the power provided for us for the hotel has been sufficient and hasn't been an issue. Now, when did the tours start at Expo? <clears throat> well, let's do, let's do a couple of little history things. One thing is the flip-out. Uh, you know, the flip-out was an idea of uh, Mike's son, Lonnie, and uh, actually he gave it the name flip-out. But um, the first flip-out champion, believe it or not, was Steve Engel from Mayfair Amusement. Wow. So it just shows you what it was like. But, I mean, it was in its infancy stage. And the one thing we tried to do in those early years was Mike, basically like being a collector of these prototype games, would always use the prototype game that he had in his collection as the tournament game for the finals. Now, for Flip Out, were you using one machine for the first one, or did you have multiples? We always used, you know, uh, uh, one machine, and, and it was it was the, the latest machine produced by, that, by the manufacturer, who was also the... The manufacturer we used for our tour it was always they always coincided. But th- but you didn't have a whole row of these machines. You just oh had we always one. had several of them. I mean I don't recall. I mean the first year we had three or five, but we always had you know several of them. Okay. To pe- for people to play. 
Right, right. And were the the prizes were the, one of the machines originally, weren't they? Yes. Because were the manufacturers donating them, you know, donating that one yep, machine? Yep, at that time they did, and, and that, that again, that helped. You know, there were so many things that just came together that those first couple of years to help make the show uh, a success, and that was also, you know, because of their support and their donation, uh, you know, we were able to give these games away to, to the winner of the tournament. So the first year that Engel won, what machine did he win? Pinbot. He won Pinbot. Yeah. And Williams donated that. If I'm not mistaken, yes, it did. So a brand new pinbot he got. Yep. Oh, wow. So again, you know, we, we broke a lot of ground with what we did and some of the ideas we did. You know, whether it be the the, um, the seminars or the flip-out tournaments. You know, we, we, we tried to be very innovative and bring a lot of things to the table. You know, the one thing that, that was my idea, which I, in the beginning, I, I thought it would it'd be great, and to this day it's just really escalated, has been the autograph session. Right, you know, a chance to meet your heroes in person, one on one, and have them sign you know your favorite piece of artwork. And when did that start? <clears throat> you know, I can't really remember the very, very first year, but uh, um, you know, I can't remember. Hmm. I can't really remember when it started, but uh, in the very beginning, and you know, there was you know a lukewarm reception, but over the years, it, it, it kept you know escalating to the point where it is now. Now, back to the. Um the tournament that Angle won, and he got his pinbot. That meant that Williams was the first company to offer uh, tours, too, right? That's a very good point. You're probably right. Okay, so was that the original California Avenue plan? That's correct. So that the California Avenue plan, just to give people some history, that plant was actually United's plan. That's correct. Where they made all the all the United games, ball bowlers, and baseballs, and and arcade stuff through the 50s, and then I think about 63, 64, uh, somehow Williams and United got thrown together in some sort of kilometer, kilometer uh, buyout, and uh, they ended up uh, moving all the Williams production to the United plant on California Avenue. And that plant is still owned by Williams today, right? Yeah, I'm not real sure about that, Clay, but I, I, the one thing I, I did want to mention was, you know, during the time when we had the, the expo, we were, like, granted a special permission to, to even have a tour in their factory. Because I believe back then, you know, th- these factories, for the most part, were very secretive and, and were off-limits to just someone to, just to walk in off the street and look around. So we, we kind of set a, a, a mark by um, allowing, you know, masses of people to come through their places. And, and we really were, were very fortunate that Williams, for one, opened the doors to us. And I recall the first year we went to Premier, you know, being an old Godlet plant and a lot of Godlet uh, personnel, you know, they were extremely secretive. So, so the mere fact of being allowed to enter that factory was like, wow, this is unbelievable. How did we break the barrier to be allowed to tour this facility? Wow. So these... I recall the first year that we went into got into Premier's plant that we were quite almost shocked that they agreed to allow us to come through their facility. Unfortunately, this was before my time. I never the only tours I ever got to do with Expo was Williams because you know Bally was was gone, right? Um, you know because Williams had bought them out in the late eighties. So you know you basically had Williams, Data East, and and um, Premier Gottlieb at at the time. So I, I never got to do any of the Gottlieb ones. I recall uh, we also uh, toured Game Plan one year. Really? Yeah, so that was the one that was one of the McAdams who was one of the head guys there. So that was uh 
interesting to see that. I mean, they they were making their game at the time. I can't recall what it was, Andromeda or something. I don't recall what it was, but but um, they also were producing like vending machines and some other off the wall coin operated pieces. What other uh, kind of? What, who else have you toured? Uh. Well, you we do electrical Valley, windings? Because I know we, you know we went to Valley and so forth, so we had to have seen Valley and Premier, Alvin G. We went, we toured that place the, the one year or two years it was there. We toured that. You did electrical windings too, didn't you? So, yeah, one year we did the electrical windings. Yeah, that was it. That was interesting to see uh, Don Murphy's collection. Yeah, I understand he's got like every Gottlieb single player from, um, you know, 1947 on uh, up to... What the sixties, right, or something? Well, it was kind of fun to see his his facility because uh, yeah, I'm not really sure of that answer, but I, I know he has a ton of them. But uh, you know that that facility has a lot of history behind it because I mean they they were making coils for Gottlieb since day one, so it was an older structure in, in Chicago. So uh, it was fun to see and be a part of that when it was you know was still there. Right. But how was Alvin G's tour? Um, you know, at the time they were producing the. Um, the Garage Band game, whatever it was called. Yeah, you know, on World Tour. Yeah, and um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot there. It was, they were just starting out, so it, it was it was modest. But um, again, it was it was the tour of any kind of pinball factory was was fascinating. So it was fun, and they gave us some buterets when we left. A whole bunch of them. I, know, I recall people just plowing through this. There was a skid of buterets, and people just grabbing them like crazy. A skid of what? The buterets, the plastic pieces. Oh, 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 the flat plastics. Yep. The silkscreen flat plastics. There you go. Right. And the, um, what was the best tour, in your opinion, ever of the, of the Expos? Well, um, the Williams were always fun, and, and, and of course, the Stern, they, they've been very creative and very, very supportive. And, you know, every year it seems like Stern has really given uh, attendees a, a really in-depth look at their facility, and, and, um, I think it's just fun to, just to be so close to the action. Right. I mean, at Williams, we toured the facility, but we didn't get quite as close to the action as with Stern. So, I mean, there at Stern, you could actually touch the pieces, and you can eyeball exactly what they're doing. You can, you can see the, the drills bits going into the, play, into the play field. So, really, at Stern, you're getting a really, you can't get much closer than that. Yeah, I remember I did the tour at Williams uh, at the new Waukegan plant. Right. You know, the literally... Three days before Williams closed pinball production. You know, I'll, I'll never forget that, Clay, because, um, you know, in my mind, Williams could have pulled the plug, you know, let's face it, one week earlier, that would have taken away a, a big part of Expo. But it, it seems to me like the people in the know knew what they were doing, and for whatever reason, they waited till Expo was done because that following Monday, they announced it. Right. And I recall I got a phone call. At the front desk there, where I was working there, the, at the uh, registration table, on a Friday, and, and someone said Williams was closing or some sort of comment like that, and I hung up the phone. Really? Kind of like uh, you know an anonymous call? The anonymous call. It was the wildest thing. Yep. You mean you actually got that call on Friday of Expo? Yes. Before that would be before even any of the Williams employees probably knew. Well, they probably had an inkling. Well, we know that George Gomez had an inkling. Right. That we do know. Right. Um, but nobody else, because of his emotional speech on the Friday seminars. Do you remember that? You were there for that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, I was all, like in the front row watching yeah. that saying, 
to myself, you know, the guy's getting like really emotional about about his his speech and about the history of pinball and Williams pinball and how this is you know a major era and the the guy is, he, I mean, he's almost in tears. Yep. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? Yep. You know, and then I'm talking to Duncan Brown and he's taking he's on the Expo Hall plan and you know. That and he's, you know, he mentioned it, you know, when I get to work on Monday, you know, I'm going to, you know, do this, that, and the other thing, and, you know, and, you know, so, I mean, he, you know, obviously some people had some, some ideas that it was going to happen, and, and others just not at all. So that, that's one thing I'll say about the Expo versus the other shows, Clay, is that we've really been fortunate and get some really top-notch speakers. And let's face it, the reason we can is because we're right there in their backyard. Right. You, they don't have to travel. Exactly right. So that, right. that's been a big plus for the Expo. And, again, that was one of the reasons why I had this on Chicago. Well, of all the speakers you've had, what uh, has there been one that's been memorable that you you know that you really... Harvey Heist really stands out as being terrific. Really? He, he was just so bubbly and enthusiastic, and, and just he had so much emotion when he spoke, and he was just so much fun to be around. Animated. And very animated, yep. Right. right. So he, he to me was really a terrific part of the of the, of the early years, especially. And he passed what two years ago? Uh, maybe perhaps more than that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This it's just too bad, but I guess nobody lives forever. But you know something else because of the expo. Um, the expo has been the uh, has helped several people uh, get jobs in the industry. I think the first one was John Norris. I recall him being at a very early expo when Gil Pollock was speaking and and. and Saying something, the fact of, geez, I'd like to come work for your company. I've actually done some, you know, I, I built a machine. Is there any chance that I can come work for you? And uh, I remember Gil saying something like, "Yeah, stop by and see me Monday, or call me up and I'll give you the opportunity." But just the mere thought at that time of getting employed by this industry was almost unheard of because, let's face it, you know, this was a pinball collector's and players show. Okay, now every every speech or talk I hold at Expo. I'm going to say those words. If anybody from, uh, you know, any of the pinball manufacturers, well, unfortunately, there's only one now, wants to hire me, I'm available. Right. <laughs> so, all right. You know, Mark Wayna was, was an early attendee. He became an employee of Williams. Yep, he worked on... Uh, Jim Keard, I believe, was an early attendee, became an employee. Yeah, one Mark worked on, uh, you know, Indy 500, mm-hmm. you know, and, and also Scared Stiff. So. Uh, Lyman Sheets was an was attendee. The lady became an employee. Right. He worked for Data East and then Williams, and now well, back you know, just, at and uh, now back at Stern. You know, it's hard to say. You know, if we really had a, 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 had a, any influence, but they certainly were, were attendees that became part of the industry. Right. Well, that's pretty cool. All right, Rob. Well, we've been going on an hour. We'll probably wrap it up. Is there anything that I've left out or that you want to add? No, just uh, keep the fire burning. It, it, it's a fun hobby for everybody, and uh, we hope you uh, enjoyed hearing some of the accolades and stories about some of the early years of the expo. I love the stories. I, I you know, especially the, uh, you know, the the older guys too. You know, you know, like the Cordax and, and and that. You know, those guys, I just I, you can't get enough of. You know. You know, one other thing I might say is uh, another person we've kind of left out in the Hall of Fame, but was a very important part of this whole equation has been Wayne Nyans. Right. The Wayne, who, who, who designed for Gallup, you know, he's been around just about forever. Not quite as old as Steve Kordak, but he, too, has is, is got a great memory by those early years. And I recall the very first expo in 1985 to um, end the banquet, you know, I finally did what I wanted to do, which was to roast my heroes, the designers. And I had the following people come up front. Well, Steve Kordak come up front. Well, Norm Clark come up front. 
Will Harvey Heights come up front? Will Wayne Nines come up front? So these four gentlemen stood up front in front of the podium, and I said, well, everyone, please rise and give these gentlemen a standing ovation because between the four of them, they've designed over, I think I used to figure, 600 pinball machines. And I recall just a roar in the crowd. We had a good 200-plus at the banquet to hear Elvin speak. And um, I recall uh, Steve Kordick having a tears in his eyes. Just, you know, these guys never got this kind of recognition or accolades. So for me, it was a personal achievement that, oh, finally, these guys are getting, you know, the the recognition that, they, that they've deserved and rarely got. So to me, it was a crowning part of the show that... Um, it was a great moment. And what year was that? 85. In 85. Wow, that's unbelievable. That's great. Huh. Okay. All right, well, thank you, Rob. I appreciate your time. All right, Clay. Thanks for calling. All right, you take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Okay, and I want to thank Rob Burke for talking to us. Rob Burke of the Pinball Expo. Just some, some great, great stories. Thank you again, Rob. I really appreciate it.